My name is Chad. I'm the pastor here at The Journey. If you're brand new, man, I would love to meet you. So come find me at the end of our service outside. I'd love to shake your hand, hear a little bit about your story and how you heard about The Journey and ended up here. Uh, like Daniel said, we start this brand new series. And as we started today, I'm going to I'm going to put a picture up on the screen. Now, you, you, you might be a little fearful of this, but, um, yeah, she's still beautiful. And I had hair back then. That was before kids, okay? Got kids and all that changed. <clears throat> Some of you remember back in the day, though, maybe you got married about the same time I did, many millennia ago. And uh, if you got married back then, you remember that when it came to, to weddings, they happened in, in churches, right? They happened in buildings like this. And then normally you would have this, this time at the end of the ceremony where you would have a reception. And the reception would take place probably in the fellowship hall or maybe there's a, a family life center or gym there that you would do this in. And things are pretty subdued, right? Remember that? You had some finger foods. Everybody's kind of very cordial and kind of hanging out and talking. And, and then when it's time for you to leave, you go get in the car and it was kind of like the golf clap as you were leaving. Nothing too crazy. Things have changed when it comes to weddings, hasn't it? Weddings are totally different now. Weddings are like this huge party, this big celebration. Uh, most people have a destination wedding. That doesn't mean some exotic place. It might just mean down the street, but it's not usually in a church anymore. And so you have this celebration at this, this destination, and, and you not only do the ceremony there, but you also have the party. And we're talking, it's a party now, isn't it? I mean, there's a dance floor and a DJ, maybe a band, and everybody's having a great time running around and dancing and doing all kinds of fun stuff. And I mean, weddings have changed. Why? Because we love a great celebration. Think about uh, here locally in D.C. Over the past couple of years, we watched the Capitals win a championship. We watched the Nationals win a championship. And what takes place when your team wins? You go downtown D.C. and you just start running around and screaming and yelling and high-fiving everybody. You to take the couches out you don't like anymore and you burn them on the street because that's the best way to get rid of them. And this is what we do when it comes to celebrations. But we love celebrations. We love parties. Now, when we have something to celebrate, something connected to family or friends or maybe some other uh, relationship we have, they're fun. And most of the time, they're all about good things that happen. Do we celebrate the bad? Think about it. You don't call your neighbors up and like, hey, we're throwing a party this weekend. They're like, oh, really? What's, what's it all about? Got into more debt this week. So I'm really excited to be celebrating that with you. We don't call for that reason. Or, hey, can you guys come to the party tomorrow? Yeah, sure. What, what are we, what are we going to celebrate? Our kid, straight F's again this quarter. We're pretty proud of him. <laughs> right? We don't celebrate that stuff. We do other things in those moments. But we celebrate the good. And this morning, there's a celebration that takes place as we begin this series called Seven Days. And as Daniel said, we're going to be looking at the last seven days in Jesus' life as we head into Easter. And today is all about a celebration. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 19. That's where we're going to spend all of our time today. Luke chapter 19. The Bible's in the seats in front of you. If you got your Journey Church app, you can open it up on the notes page and follow along. You can also take notes on your program. But let me kind of set up the, the, the uh, environment and the setting for our story. This is the week heading into Passover, which was a huge celebration for the Israelite nation. And so the, the, the city of Jerusalem, I mean, the, the number of people, the population would, would double in size. And in fact, they would say there was almost over a million people that would show up 
for Passover. The Jewish people were coming from all over the known world at that time to be there. This was a part of what you had to do to be Jewish. And so you've got all these people there. The Romans would actually send legions of soldiers to Jerusalem to make sure that there weren't any riots, to make sure there weren't any revolutionaries who were going to try to start something. And so not only do you have all of these Israelites that are there, now you've got all this Roman military that's there too. And so this, this was a hustling, bustling city during the week of Passover. And that kind of leads us into where we are with this event in the life of Jesus today. Luke chapter 19, starting with verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Beth, excuse me, Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his, of his disciples. Uh, stop there for a second. Um, as we read that part there, these two villages were about a mile from Jerusalem. Uh, they were not very far at all. And in fact, this was a place that Jesus probably stayed when he would go to Jerusalem. He normally wouldn't stay in Jerusalem. He'd stay right in one of these villages. He had really close friends there, some people you may be familiar with. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus actually lived there and were close friends of Jesus's. And so he would spend quite a bit of time there in those villages. Look at the rest of verse 29. Saying to him, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. So here's Jesus. He's heading into town. He's heading into Jerusalem, and he tells his disciples, you need to go get this colt and bring it to me. Now, here's the crazy part. In the Hebrew, it says Jesus tells them to go steal the colt. That's what it actually—I'm just kidding. doesn't really say that. <clears throat> he just says, go grab this colt. This colt's there. It's waiting on you. Go grab it. Look at verse 32. Those who were sent ahead and went and found it just at it as it, he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. And so the disciples come into the town. They find the colt. They go over to it. They start untying it. The owners pop out like, hey, what are you doing? And they're like, uh, the Lord needs the colt. Now, I got kind of a warped sense, sense of stuff, so I'm going to stay with me for a second. Any Star Wars aficionados out there? Like every time, thank you, every time I read, I'm not a Star Wars nerd, by the way. Somebody was implying earlier, I'm not a Star Wars nerd. But every time I read this passage right here, here's what I think about. You remember in A New Hope, that, which was the fourth movie, but actually the first movie that came out, right? Okay. Um, in it, you've got, you've got Obi-Wan Kenobi, you've got Luke Skywalker and R2-D2 and C-3PO, and they're all in that hovercraft, right? And they're there in the city, and stormtroopers are the dumbest people in the whole universe, aren't they? I don't know where they find these people, the dumbest people. But anyway, they see the droids, and they're like, oh, those are the droids we're looking for. And Obi-Wan Kenobi's like, these aren't the droids you're looking for. And what they say, they're like, these aren't the droids we're looking for. And they're like, all right, go ahead, pass on. Now, I don't know why you use the robot voice when you do Obi-Wan Kenobi, but I like to do that. Anyway, really has no connection to the story at all. But when I read this, this is what it always takes me back to. Like, here are the disciples, and they're like, the Lord needs it. And the people are like, the Lord needs it. So, I mean, they just take it. That's what happens. It wasn't the force. It was uh, Jesus was well known there. Uh, he had been traveling in that area for at least three years, probably had been there many years before that too. So the people knew him. They knew who he was. They respected him. They adored him. And so when the disciples said, hey, Jesus needs it, people were like, oh, yeah, sure, Jesus needs it. Go ahead, take that colt. Look at verse 35. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. 
When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. So Jesus has this reputation there as a prophet, as a miracle worker, as a teacher. But they're connecting it to something even bigger than that. They connect it to the Messiah. This is the moment that these Israelites have been waiting for their whole life. They, they knew the prophecies. They knew who the Messiah was supposed to be. They knew how this was supposed to play out. And here's Jesus who's on this cult heading into Jerusalem. Now this actually went back to Zechariah 9.9 where there's this prophecy about the Messiah coming into Jerusalem on this cult. And so here we have this. It's all sort of playing out. And so these followers, they began to equate Jesus with this, this king, this earthly king that they thought he was supposed to be. And there's no better time for this to happen. It's Passover week. This was a, a week, a celebration for the Israelites that reminded them of 1,500 years earlier when God led them out of Egypt through Moses. And so they're celebrating that, but now they're thinking, now here comes the Messiah. This prophecy is coming true. What better time for us to now be freed from the oppression of the Romans than for Jesus to be here and to lead us into this, this celebration, lead us into this, this time where we finally take over our city and we take over our land. Here we find, though, they're singing this song to him. It comes in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. When I read this part of this passage, um, I, I know we probably have some Virginia Tech alumni here. Um, Maybe some fans, a few parents in here that are paying tons of money to send your kid there, all that fun stuff. But um, I, I don't know if you've ever been to a Virginia Tech football game before. Maybe you watched it on TV. But before the game, before the, the football players come out on the field, I mean, it is an, an incredible, amazing experience. Uh, like I said, I, I went to one of the games, and before the players come out, everybody in the stands, now we're talking tens of thousands of people, start jumping up and down. That is the scariest thing I've ever experienced because the whole stadium is moving. I mean, you can literally feel it moving underneath your feet when you're not jumping up and down. But, but it's crazy. So much so that seismographs in that area pick up an earthquake every time they have a home game in Blacksburg because people are jumping up and down. Now, as the people are yelling and screaming and jumping up and down, here's the best part. Metallica's Sandman, Inner Sandman, comes blasting through the sound system. I don't care if you hate Virginia Tech. It is just the most incredible experience. People jumping up and down. Inner Sandman's playing. The football players come out. Everybody's crazy. It's an amazing thing. And I kind of read that, and I sort of think that's what it was like, right? Now, we don't see in Scripture where it says Inner Sandman was not playing. And maybe it was playing. We don't know, okay? But you got this huge celebration. Because here's Jesus on this cult. He's coming in Jerusalem. I imagine everybody's jumping up and down and screaming and they're singing these songs because they think Jesus is coming to bring back this power to the Israelite nation. Look at verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. We have three kids in our house, and sometimes as parents, we like to do fun things with them and go somewhere nice and fun and enjoy some moments together. But if you've got more than one kid in your house, you, you probably know that one kid who, even though you're doing something fun and enjoyable, is always like the, the downer, right? And so we have this thing that we'll tell our kids when we have that one kid that's in the bad mood. 
Every party has a pooper, and the pooper's you. And we'll kind of sing that, and everybody will sing that toward that kid. You know what I'm talking about. You've got those people in your life. Like, every time you're trying to do something fun, you're trying to celebrate. It's like, why are you the party pooper? Pharisees equal party poopers in the story of the life of Jesus. Because every time he's trying to do something fun, every time there's something amazing that's happening, they jump in and are like, we got to bring this party down. I mean, this, this can't be fun. We, we can't celebrate. And so they're telling Jesus, you got to tell these guys to shut up. And Jesus is like, I'm not going to do it. And the reason is pretty simple is because what they're saying is actually true. And so we find the Pharisees are trying to bring this party down. We see Jesus who tells them, hey, these things are happening for a purpose. But, but I want you to look at this next part of this passage because we find there's this incredible emotional moment for Jesus. Look at verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Here's this big celebration where these disciples are kind of holding Jesus up and saying, hey, you're going to be this new king. And what do we find Jesus doing? He's not really excited about what's going on. He says he's weeping. There's two things that Jesus knows. Here's the first thing. About 40 years from this moment uh, in 70 A.D., Jerusalem and the temple are going to be fully destroyed. If you look at the historian Josephus and his writings on this and the wars of the Jews, about 66 A.D., we find this rebel force of Jewish people come in, and they actually take over Jerusalem again. They, they're able to get rid of the Romans. But in 70 A.D., the general Titus brings in three legions, and he surrounds the city. It's about three days before Passover. He surrounds the city. In fact, he sends the military out, and they cut down every tree within miles of that area. They build this wall around the walls of Jerusalem. It's about eight kilometers all the way around. And he, he sieges this city. You have all of these people that are there. Now, remember, this is about three days before Passover. You actually have Passover pilgrims that are there just for the celebration. They're, they're not there to fight. They're not there for any military-type advancement. They're just there to celebrate uh, Passover. And so they're stuck there. Josephus tells how... Some of these people were trying to escape, and they would try to get out of the city walls because they didn't want to be there. The Romans would capture them, and about 500 people every single day were crucified. They were trying to get out of the city because the Romans were like, we want this back. For four months, the siege happened. Josephus talks about how about 1.1 million pilgrims died there, mostly from starvation, but also when finally... The Romans break through the walls. They basically destroyed everything and everybody in it. They tore down the temple. They burnt the temple down. And here's Jesus in 33 AD who's prophesying that this is going to happen 40 years from now. Here's the crazy part. Luke writes these words in about 63, 68 AD. He puts all these pieces together through his eyewitness accounts and talking to people. And so he puts the story of Jesus together, this history of who Jesus is. And so he writes that before the walls come down. 70 AD, the walls come down. 75 AD is when Josephus writes to tell the story of what happened there in 70 AD. 
It's just a reminder to us about Scripture and about Jesus being able to prophesy the future. And so he feels this intense pain because he knows this place, the temple specifically, where God dwelled was not going to be anymore. And Jesus loved the city. But he loved the people more. But he also knew that many of them, their family members, their kids, that they were going to die there in about 40 years because they would never make this change to truly following who God was. And so he's weeping because he knows that. But there's another piece to this. Jesus knows their celebration is for the wrong reasons. He's actually not there to lead them into some revolt. He's not there to be a revolutionary. He's not there to take over the city from the Romans and to bring the Israelites back into power. He's not there for that. You know what he's there for? He's there for them. He's there for the Jewish people. He knows that's the importance of his life and who he is. But the Jews had an expectation for Jesus. They had an expectation that, Jesus, this is what you're going to do. This is who you're going to be. And Jesus like, but that's not the reality of why I am here. This morning, I want to talk about this idea of the expectations we have and the reality that's there. If we look at the Israelites, again, they had this expectation of, of Jesus. But if you think about our life, we kind of expect, have expectations in every aspect of of living, don't we? I mean, we have expectations when we buy a house. We have expectations for the teams we are on at work. We have expectations in raising our kids. We have expectations that when we get in our car in the morning, we turn that ignition, that it's going to start. We have expectations for, uh, for our teams winning championships. In every aspect of life, we carry these expectations with us. But one thing that we have expectations in more than any other are our relationships. We all have expectations for relationships. And the one area that we bring the most expectations in is marriage. Now, I've kind of talked about this before in some of the marriage series that we have done. But when it comes to marriage, we bring expectations into that marriage. Now, I'm getting ready to stereotype here. So don't send me some email about how I stereotype people. I've already acknowledged I'm getting ready to stereotype men and women, okay? You can write it, just don't send it. Here we go. Ladies, you kind of have an expectation when you come into the marriage, right? Now, it may be flip-flop for you, but that's okay, too. But, um, but ladies, maybe when you go into a marriage, into your marriage, your expectations are the, the cute little house with the picket fence. Maybe it's the, the big, exotic vacations. Maybe it's the plump bank account. Maybe it's the husband with the six-pack abs. Yeah. And, and so you kind of bring this into the marriage. You bring these expectations. And dudes, we bring expectations, too. And I've talked about this before. It's just one thing. It's those intimate moments, many, many, many intimate moments, which is sex. But that's what we bring into the relationship, right? We have this expectation that this is what marriage is going to be about. But there's expectations, and there's reality. And so, ladies, you have those expectations when you come into the marriage. But the reality is you don't have the house with the picket fence. You've got the studio apartment with the very thin walls. Your, your big exotic vacations are to, his in or to your in-law's house, right? That big, I'm sorry, in-laws, but that big plump bank account that you're looking for, it's, it's full of overdraft charges. And then those six-pack abs, he's carrying around a keg, right? There you go. There's expectations and reality. Dudes, there's expectations for all these intimate moments. And yet every night she walks out of the bathroom in baggy sweats, oversized T-shirt, face mask on, and guess what that means? Do not touch me every single night right 
But isn't that what marriage is? Marriage is all about you bring these expectations into the marriage, but then there's a reality. And sometimes, or a lot of times, the expectations aren't healthy, and sometimes the reality's not healthy either. And marriage is all about trying to figure that out. Where, where do we kind of meet there? What does this look like? And that's for a marriage series. I'm not going to talk about that today. Here's my point. In relationships, in marriage, we bring expectations into those relationships. But then what we find on the other side of that is the reality. And here are these Israelites, they come into town or they come with Jesus there and they've got these expectations that Jesus is going to come in. He's going to be this warrior. He's going to be this conqueror. He's going to be this ruler. He's going to be this king. He's going to be the Messiah. He was, but not in the same sense that they were looking for. He wasn't there to, to come into this place to defeat the Romans. That wasn't his purpose. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he comes in as a savior, but not the one they wanted. He came in as the one they actually needed. Their expectations were different than what the reality was for Jesus. Which leads us to this question that I think you and I have to wrestle with, and we wrestle with all the time. What are our expectations of Jesus? When you think about it, what are your expectations of Jesus? Because here's kind of the expectations we have for Jesus. We think Jesus is supposed to be the healer the miracle worker, the lottery ticket, the banker, the relationship therapist, the marriage mender, the political supporter, the moral reformer. Here's the way we look at Jesus. Jesus, my expectation of you is to come in and to fix everything that's broken in my life. I, man, I, I got this problem. You know what? Call Jesus. Jesus will take care of that problem for you. Oh, I, I've got this issue in this relationship. Hey, here's the deal. Text Jesus. Jesus will come and take care of this for you. And this is kind of the way we view Jesus, that Jesus' role is just to fix the problems and the issues that we have in our life. And so Jesus is really just the fixer. But that's not why Jesus came. It wasn't to fix everything like the Israelites thought. It wasn't to fix everything like you and I think many times. It was so different than that. Jesus didn't go into Jerusalem to take care of and to fix the problem of the Romans. He went to Jerusalem to be there to give life to the Israelites. And sometimes we forget that part of who Jesus is. That Jesus isn't the fixer. Jesus is the giver. If we go back and look at Luke chapter 19, verse 35, there's this really interesting piece to what happens on that day. It says, They brought in, this is the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. Now, Jesus being on this colt was prophetic, and I just talked about that from, from the Old Testament, but it's also symbolic in, in what's happening here. But, but I want you to notice something when you look at this passage. Look at the very end there. It says, And put Jesus on it. Now, who does this? This is his disciples. Now, we have nothing in the Scripture that says Jesus can't get on this colt himself, okay? But what we find is that the colt's there, and they basically go and grab Jesus and thrust him on top of that colt. Why? They're like, hey, Jesus, we've got expectations for you. <laughs> There's some good stuff getting ready to happen. We, we need to go into town here. We need to go into the city, and we've got to start just kicking some tail, okay? We're, we're going we're gonna to build this rebel force, and we're going to go in, and we're going to overthrow Jerusalem so we can take this city back, and then we can take back our nation. And so the disciples are like, our expectation of you, Jesus, is just like everybody else's, to go in, to battle, to win, so, Jesus, you can become this earthly king. 
Here's what's so interesting about Jesus going in on a cult. If you look back in history, when kings would come into cities on horses, it meant they were there to fight. But if kings came into cities on colts, it meant they were there to bring peace. So here's Jesus coming into the city on this colt. And it's not to fight. It's to bring peace. He's not there to fix what's going on with the Romans. He's not there for that purpose at all. He is there to bring peace. And in fact, he's there to bring inner peace. He wasn't there to bring world peace. He wasn't in there to bring job peace or, or family peace. He was there to bring inner peace into these Israelites that were there. And it's an inner peace that you and I can have in our life, too. Jesus isn't the fixer. Jesus is the giver of peace. A few years ago, I went to a funeral back in my hometown in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and um, was at a big church was where the funeral was happening because a, a couple of buddies I grew up with um, had actually been their camp counselors, and we'd hung out and played basketball and stuff growing up. Um, their dad, Chris and, and David, their dad had passed away uh, at the age of 65, very rare form of cancer, and happened pretty quickly. And, and so I, I'm sitting there in this church, and I see those two guys who had become pastors, and they were up on the stage. And, and then the other guy was a pastor at this very large church there, and his name was Will. And uh, it's kind of funny because Will and I went to high school together, and we're, we're good friends. And in high school, I just said, Will is never going to be a pastor. <laughs> so parents, there's hope, because there he was. He was up on stage, and it's kind of fun to see that. But Chris began to talk about his dad, and he talked about the moment that he and his mom went to the doctor when his dad found out he had cancer. And Chris said that his dad said, hey, guys, this is a win-win situation for me. And Chris looked at his dad, and he was pretty incredulous. He's like, Dad, how could you even say that? It doesn't even make sense. So Chris talked about sort of this anger that was there. But, but then his dad explained it, and here's what Chris said his dad said. He says, I know this is going to be tough on you all, but this is a win-win for me. If I live, it's a miracle. I get more time on earth with you, and many people will get to hear the story. If I die, I get to be with Jesus. I don't lose either way. And when Chris shared those words, the human part of me is angry at his dad, too. But his dad understood something that I think we struggle with so many times. So for his dad, Jesus was more than a miracle worker. Jesus was more than a healer. Jesus was more than a doctor. Jesus was more than an earthly king. Jesus was more than a reformer. Jesus was more than a political party or a political statement. Jesus is more than just a way out of our debt, out of our pain, out of our hurt, out of our turmoil. Jesus was much more than that. His dad understood that. His dad said, Jesus is more than these things. Jesus isn't a fixer. Jesus is a giver of peace. That's the thing you and I need to learn to hold on to when it comes to Jesus. Jesus isn't here to fix everything in life. For we just say, hey, Jesus, can you fix this? Great, appreciate that. I'm off to do my own thing. No, Jesus is a giver of peace. Jesus came to deliver us, not from our problems, but to deliver us from ourselves. And so sometimes our expectations can really get messy when it comes to Jesus. Because there's the reality of why Jesus is really here. This morning I want to share with you three next steps that we can take 
Uh, here at The Journey, we talk a lot about helping people take their next steps with Jesus because it's such an important part of who we are. This first one I'm going to share with you is, is actually very practical. The other two are more of an emotional, spiritual thing that has to happen inside some of us. Here, here's the first next step that maybe some of us here need to take, and it's baptism. Uh, we're going to talk about baptism throughout this series because it is such an, a powerful, important part of our spiritual journey. And so maybe you've kind of lived a life where you've, you've followed Jesus and you just haven't taken this step in your spiritual journey. This is a big part of that. And so we want to invite you to take that step, to follow Jesus fully through that. Maybe you're here this morning and you're kind of like, man, I, I don't have a whole lot of faith in Jesus or I'm just kind of figuring this out. But, but I want that be that, that person who accepts that peace that Jesus came to give. And so maybe for you, it's the starting point of that spiritual journey. Wherever you may be, if you haven't taken that step, we invite you to take that connection card that's in front of you and fill that out. Mark, you want to be baptized? We'll just have a conversation. We'll answer any questions you may have. You can do that on your app too, but we'd love to have that conversation with you. And so maybe your part of the spiritual journey is to be baptized. Maybe your part of understanding what that peace looks like is through that step of baptism. But here's another step that some of us may need to take. Maybe we need to let go of our expectations. And we got to let go of the expectations that we have for Jesus because you and I, we have expectations of Jesus and who Jesus is. Let me ask you something. How's that working out for you? Because you're probably mad at Jesus because there's something in your life that you expected Jesus to fix and Jesus hasn't fixed it. And so now you're mad at Jesus and you think it's Jesus' fault. Here's why we feel that way. We have these expectations of Jesus. Let go of those expectations that you have. Maybe it's time to re kind of calibrate your spiritual journey and your spiritual life and maybe you've been a follower of Jesus and taking that step of baptism maybe for you it's beginning to let go of those expectations of Jesus and understanding the reality here's the third thing your third step I would say let Jesus give you peace you want peace in your life you want peace in your relationships you want peace in your family let Jesus bring that peace to you we talked about marriages a little earlier and as a pastor, I talk to quite a few people whose marriages are struggling. And not just in the church, but it's funny how much stuff people tell you when, even outside the church. But I have these conversations over and over again. And here's what I would tell you. If your marriage is struggling, I will tell you the best way to change that. Change your focus. Begin to make Jesus the center of your life. You want a healthy marriage? Make Jesus the center of your life. You want a healthy marriage? Hopefully your spouse will make Jesus the center of their life. Because what I find over and over and over again is when marriages are struggling, Jesus is not the center. And here's why. Because we've said, here are the expectations of Jesus. Jesus, my marriage is crumbling. Jesus, can you jump in and fix this? And maybe Jesus does something incredible there and it's fixed. But here's what we do. Jesus, I got this. I'm good. And we forget. And we go back to the same place we were before. You want a healthy marriage? You want healthy relationships? Make Jesus the center of your life. Let Jesus bring you that peace that we all desire. Which means we stop putting these expectations on Jesus. And we allow Jesus to bring this inner peace to us. That's why he came. Not to fix us, but to give us life, to give us hope, to give us peace. This message this morning is um, not only for you... It's for me because I've shared some of the story before. But the church, our church is very transient, so many of you haven't heard this. Um, this, or excuse me, this January 27th, 19 years ago, my wife Kara and I, we lost our first child. 
Our first child was stillborn, uh, 34 weeks into the pregnancy. And um, again, as I've shared in the past, my expectations of Jesus as we went through that, before it even happened, was that Jesus was going to be the miracle worker. My expectations were that Jesus was going to be the healer. Jesus was going to be the doctor. That Jesus was going to take care of our child. And we, we knew there was some health stuff there. But that was my prayer. Jesus, fix this. You got this. I, I just want to tell this incredible story of, of the work you did and what you did. And it's going to change so many lives. And so I had this huge expectations I had placed on Jesus. Here's what happened. Death. The reality was death. Our child was stillborn. And so there was a physical death that took place. There was also a spiritual death there, and that was me. And I was working at a church at the time, but there was a spiritual death inside of me where I finally kind of said, I don't know if I really believe this anymore. Because I put these expectations on Jesus, and Jesus didn't answer the expectations that I have. He didn't fix these problems and these issues. Where am I? You know what I had to find? I had to find that inner peace. I had to finally let go of those expectations that I had in Jesus and say, well, that's, Jesus didn't come to fix these things and maybe that happens and, and when it does it's incredible when we have those moments we get to share that but but what I found out was that Jesus didn't come to fix me Jesus came to bring me inner peace and until I grasped that I struggled with my faith and honestly it took me a long time to get to that place of accepting that peace from Jesus but I can tell you once I did it totally changed the way I look at my life totally changes the things I experience. It doesn't mean bad times don't come and hurt's still not there and pain's not there. It doesn't mean that's going to go away because all of a sudden I've accepted the reality of who Jesus is. Not at all. But it means when those moments come, I can find that place of peace because I know that's why Jesus came. And that's the thing I have to hold on to. Look, you have expectations on Jesus. I still struggle with putting expectations on Jesus, but here's the deal. Jesus didn't come to fix you or your problems or your issues. Jesus came to bring us peace. And if we can hold on to that peace, God can do amazing things in our lives. What are your expectations of Jesus? And what's the reality? Is he your fixer? Or is he your giver of life and hope and peace? This morning, we get to be reminded of that as we come around this table, like we do every single Sunday, as we take the bread and the juice. It is that reminder to us that Jesus didn't come to fix things. Jesus wasn't sent to fix our lives. Jesus came to, to give us life, an abundant life, to bring about this peace. This morning, we're going to go old school with a, a song we're going to sing. It's a hymn. Fanny Crosby actually wrote it back in the mid-1800s, I believe, and I didn't know this about her until this week, but as I was reading up on her, um, when she was young, she had got an infection in her eyes, and she went blind. And so there was this opportunity for her to just kind of look at Jesus and wonder, why did you do this to me? But she didn't. You know what she found? She found peace through Jesus Christ. And she was working with a musician one day, and the musician started to play, and she started to sing this song, Blessed Assurance, Blessed Assurance, Blessed Assurance. And and today, we still sing that song because it's a reminder that even when life is tough and life is hard, Jesus still brings us peace. We're going to sing that song together. So I'm going to invite you to stand right now. As you feel led, you can come to the front, you can go to the back and grab the bread and juice, take it back to your seats. 
Uh, here at the journey, we remain standing. We sing together, and then we'll take this these emblems together. Maybe you're here today, and man, you just need some prayer. Our prayer team's going to be in the back. They would love to pray with you and over you. Go back there. Just skip communion for now. Go back there and do that. Maybe you came and you filled out a connection card. You came prepared to give. You can drop that in the offering baskets. But what are your expectations of Jesus, and what's reality? Let's commune together at this time.